Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Or light up your face with an app. One of the two. Micah chapter 5. Our reading this morning starts at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray together. Father, we ask right now that the fire of your Holy Spirit would touch my life in a way that we're set on fire this morning. I pray that the words that I preach would convey your heart, would convey your mind, your wisdom, and they would have their perfect work in us this morning so that as we go from this place, as you shake us out into the city of Tulsa and Jenks and Broken Arrow and wherever else we may be going this week, that as you shake us out of this place, you would be shaking out flavorful salt into the earth. And to that end, we ask for your powerful help through Christ our Lord. And everybody said, Amen. Now, at the beginning of Advent, I, I mentioned Fleming Rutledge, and Paul mentioned her last week. And Reverend Rutledge is an Anglican priest. She was one of the first women ordained in the 1970s. And she is one of those voices. She reminds me a lot of Eugene Peterson in the sense that people who are liberal and conservative seem to love her, even though they don't love each other. People on the right and on the left find her to be terribly profound, and she is, and incredibly helpful and prophetic because she is, and even though we don't like each other, we all really like her. And she came out with a book that was released, and it was profoundly and creatively called Advent, filled with sermons and writings about Advent, and it's amazing. And so... Um, there was a thought that I came across as I was preparing for the first week's sermon, and it, it really struck me, and, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, this is where you personally need to sit this Advent season. And as I was preparing the sermons, I felt equally that this really needs to sort of anchor and be a centering thought for what you do. And of course, in line with that, I forgot to share it with you the first Sunday. It was so important. I thought, well, you know, we can skip over that in my notes. But... I did manage in my 40s to bring it back for Sunday 2 of Advent, and I want to start off right here because this is where we're concluding. Fleming says this, she says, Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our own hearts. Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our own hearts. And I think in a moment of clarity and calm, we would probably be prone to admit that our hearts are scary. Our hearts are complicated. Rutledge would go on to say, she brings out this idea that there are two kinds of people in the world. 
And she breaks them down into these two categories. The first are those people who have come to terms with the brokenness and the disappointment of our world. In other words, these are the wide, open-eyed people of the world. And the second category of people are people who live in patterns of denial and false optimism. Denial and false optimism. Some of you might have a relative that is very much into this pattern of denial and false optimism. The person who somehow manages to brush away, sweep under the carpet, lock in a closet the truth, because the truth can be ugly. The truth can be despairing. The truth can be disappointing. And it just is much better and convenient if we don't talk about it. Have you ever met somebody like that? It's just better to not talk about it. If we ignore it, it will go away. Have you, right? You know this, right? And I think what's interesting about that is, to a great extent, our cultural Christmas celebrations feed into that very well. They feed into an overly sentimental view of life. Now, let me be honest. One of my favorite Christmas songs, because I'm an old, old, creaky old soul, is Irving Berlin's White Christmas, sung only by Bing Crosby. Nobody else has business singing that song than Bing Crosby. But I have had to confess The song just feeds some of the worst parts of who we are. Maybe that's why I like it, because I'm a sinner. Well, think about it. The song, which I think in some ways catches up a lot of what is in the cultural Christmas celebrations of America, the song anchors our hope in the past. In other words, it's hope and anticipation. It's looking forward. It's dreaming of a white Christmas. But here's the qualifier. Just like the ones we used to know. And there's something about that mentality. Bing has now gone on to be with the Lord, so we can say this and he won't be hurt. There's something about that mentality that feeds the worst parts of who we are. Because frankly... The ones we used to know are not as good as we imagined them to be. I wasn't expecting an amen right there, but it's all right. They're not as good as we, they're they're blessed and they're wonderful, but they're gray. And if you don't believe me, just think about this on Christmas Day when you're sitting down at the table with that family member. Oh yeah, this, I remember this. You see, just like the ones we used to know, in some way, it can feed a sinful sense of nostalgia. Now, I'm not talking about gratefulness for God's faithfulness in the past. I'm not talking about looking back over your life and counting your blessings. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an overly sentimental, nostalgic view of the past that puts a filter on all of the sin, on all of the brokenness, and everything's now just got a soft glow on it. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm suggesting Advent has no room for nostalgia because Advent doesn't look over your shoulder. It looks to the coming of the king. 
Now, there I was looking for an amen, actually. It doesn't have room for nostalgia because Advent is about cultivating a blessed hope. Jesus is coming again. Try this side of the room. Jesus is coming again. Y'all saved. (laughs) So I'm going to be preaching over here to this morning. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. You, you can't live, and, and here's the reality, right? If you're living in first century Mediterranean uh, Roman culture, and you're that person who has decided to join up with those people following this Jewish rabbi, you're really at risk of being ostracized, of losing your job, of losing your position in culture and your status and your comfort, your kids. You're talking persecution coming and going depending on where you are and who's in charge. You're certainly not safe at the very least. For those people, the birth of Jesus is important, but not nearly as important as the coming of Jesus. Not because they want to escape. Not because they're looking to flee the scene. Because they're convinced that the same Jesus who was taken up is coming back to set everything to rights. You see, I think this approach to Advent, this is why Advent, for those of us who didn't come up in it, it's a struggle for us to actually like Advent. Because for those of us who came up in Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches, we didn't really know what it was much beyond a chocolate-filled calendar. And the last thing anybody wants is to be a Grinch. And then comes the preacher. You're in darkness. We're going to light one candle, but it's still pretty dark. (laughs) You're going to hope we get to the fourth Sunday of Advent because it's dark and ominous. That's what we, you know, and and trust me, you can imagine I'm I'm in New York pastoring a very Pentecostal church because I still keep that a little on the down low. I'm very wild and crazy. And at some point, (laughs) anyway, um, I'm getting up and I'm trying to lead this community into a richer, more historic sense of time and space and practice. And the church calendar is at the very heart of that. And so when I first, I was like a ninja for Advent. I was like, don't smile. God is not here. You know, like, I was like, that's, that's, and we don't want to get to that place. You're not exactly winning people over. You know, and you're, you're in black to begin with. And then you're talking about just darkness. It's very ominous. So we don't want to be the brooding Advent people. And everybody said, that's right. Yes, we don't want to be the brooding dark storm clouds of Advent. That's not who we want to be. We want to be people of hope. That's what we need to be. Could somebody just smile at me, please? Because nobody in the room is smiling right now. Thank you so much. Like, we want to be people of hope. That's 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 what we have to be. See, there's nothing holy, there's nothing gracious about having a frown on our face because the world is broken. Anybody can do that. Maybe most people do that. And there's nothing holy about having a fake smile on your face because you're ignoring the mess that is our world. There's nothing great about that. 
but people who can, on the one hand, be completely honest about what is going on around us, and on the other other hand, still have a smile on their face because they have hope. See, there's something there, isn't there? There's something there. That's where I want to land. See, I, wanna, I don't want to be the overly sentimental, nostalgic, oh, I just wish I could have a 1943 Christmas guy. As much as I do, I have to be that person who comes into Advent saying, Jesus is coming. I cannot wait for Jesus to arrive. I'm going to spend the rest of my life hoping, expecting. It's the blessed hope of the church. And I think Micah's prophecy comes into play here quite nicely. Because in that that second verse, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, look at this, you are too little, you are too little to even be listed among the clans of Judah. (laughs) In other words, this text is, is saying, all right, Precisely because you see things the right way, God's promises might seem too good to be true. In other words, Bethlehem, if you really understand what you're about, you have to be thinking, there's no way the Messiah is showing up here. If Bethlehem is honest about its own smallness, about its own insignificance, Bethlehem has to say, there's no reason that Yahweh should send the Messiah to our town because it shouldn't even really be a town. And I think what the prophets are saying here to all of us this morning is don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. I wonder if Elizabeth struggled with hope. We read about Elizabeth this morning. We heard the gospel reading tell us that Elizabeth is visited by Mary. But what the gospel reading didn't talk about is the fact that Elizabeth was living in seclusion. I'm hoping and guessing you're familiar with the story of Elizabeth, but her husband, Zachariah, is a prophet. He's from the tribe of Levi, and he's serving uh, as a priest And he has a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And at this point, of course, the priesthood has been altered because of exile and the return and the building of the temple. And so they're trying to organize themselves in such a way that the priests have one opportunity in their lifetime to enter into the temple and present offerings. You're going to work for 25 years. A priest serves from the time he's 25 to the time he's 50, according to Leviticus chapter 8. And in that 25 years, you're going to get one shot, no pressure, to do the liturgy. One chance. And he goes in, and an angel shows up beside the altar. And Zechariah says, how can this be? I'm an old man, and my wife is old. The reality is, if you lived past the age of 15 in the Roman Empire, chances were, more than not, that you'd be dead by the time you were 45. That's the best statistical information I could find for you. 
because infant mortality was so bad, one out of three children would, would die. That was the infant mortality rate of the ancient Near East was one in three. I've got three kids, so I've been thinking all week which one would be the one. See, Paul tells these lovely, soft stories about Nora, and I'm picking out which one of my kids would die in infant mortality. I'm dark. Imagine that. You have a, one, a two in three chance of surviving childbirth and childhood, and if you make it to 15, you'd be lucky to see 45. 50? You're old. I'm 46. I can feel it reading this text now. I'm living on borrowed time right now. And the question I really felt the Lord brought to my heart was this. Why was Elizabeth secluded? Why, having heard this wonderful promise, and at one point she even says, you've taken away my shame because she's been childless, and in this culture, a barren wife is a shameful thing in this ancient culture. And it's a very public thing, and everybody's noticing the fact that, oh, you're 20 and you still haven't, chi haven't had a child. You're 30, you still haven't had a child. You're 35, well, clearly you're not tithing. You don't have a child. Right? This is the culture that they come up in, and she's now, safe to say, in her 40s, arguably the last decade of her life, and she has no child. And here God comes with this amazing promise. There's the, the weird deaf-mute situation going on with her husband, which was probably glorious for her, and she's got all this reason to be shouting and praising, and she is secluded, it tells us. The text says she went off into seclusion. And this is very interesting to me because I wonder how many people have a promise that God is going to do something great through them, but they have every reason to believe the promise will fail. And it's easier for us to withdraw and keep a, a, our head low and keep ourselves off the radar socially rather than to be out in front of everybody who's now looking at our belly all the time, waiting for it to pop. You see, we're not the only ones who find God's promises hard to believe. There are a bunch of friends around us that would also find God's promises hard to believe, who are looking at Elizabeth and saying, yeah, right, there is no way she's having a baby. And the beautiful thing about conception is that for a good chunk of the time that you're pregnant, nobody can see that you're pregnant. I want you to stay with me right here because this is the crux of what I'm getting at this morning. There are a lot of people who've got a promise of God inside them that seems too good to be true, but nobody's going to see it for a while. God has spoken something. He's deposited something in your life, and it's going to take a while, not just for the promise to come true, but for there even to be a hint that God is up to something. That's what's beautiful about this pregnancy story, is here is a woman who's close to the end of her life, and she's pregnant with a child by God, and it, we guess. You can't see anything in month one or in month two. And sometimes it's easier to be secluded than it is to deal with the questions. 
It's easier to withdraw from the church. It's easier to withdraw from your friends. It's easier to conveniently avoid people rather than have to deal with the looks and the questions that often come with the promise of God. There's no shortage of people who are waiting to hear your promise and watch your belly. And this is where we have an unexpected Jesus. Because Jesus shows up in the secluded place. Jesus shows up in the place where we've tried to get away. Jesus shows up at the retreat center. Where Elizabeth has retreated to avoid the stares and the looks and the whispers of people who are wondering, is she really pregnant? This is five plus months on. And Jesus shows up. Friends, I don't know what your life story is, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you're in the room, but you're hiding while you're in here. And you don't want people to get too close. You don't want people to know too much about your story. How about this one? You're in the last decade of your life and you're pregnant. Boy, there's a really good chance you're not going to be able to bring that baby to full term. And then people are going to look at you and say, well, God wanted to do something great through them, but you know what? They really couldn't just bring it to term. It's easier for us to isolate ourselves and withdraw from one another, both in the church and in relationships and in our families. It's easier to pull back and just let whatever is going to happen happen on the down low rather than to be in the midst of it, in the thick of it, where people will judge, they'll assess, they'll talk. Frankly, having grown up in the church, worked in the church, every year of my life in the church, I can testify that sometimes silence is better than skepticism. We've been talking about unexpected Jesus, and the the first week that I got up, I talked about that sometimes we don't expect Jesus due to distraction. Whether the anxiety or abundance that's in our life can distract us from his appearing. Next message I talked about, Jesus being unexpected due to distortion. And that is we've created a God in our own mind and in our image. And we're looking for a God who doesn't exist. So when the true God shows up, he could walk right by us and we wouldn't even know. And today I'm thinking about an unexpected Jesus that we'd miss because of our seclusion. Because of our privacy, because of our desire to protect and preserve ourselves. And I basically came in this morning to tell you, Jesus goes to where you're hiding. In work, in your family, in your ministry, you can hide in all of these places. Being super busy, oh man, we're just so crazy busy. We'd love to get together, but we're crazy busy. Oh, work, man, I got to tell you, it's never been like this before. 
I came here to tell you God goes to where you're hiding. But he shows up in Mary. Mary is that one Bible character who gets all the Protestants nervous. And I'm C squared. I got a collar and a crucifix this morning, and I'm about to talk to you about Mary for one minute. I'm going to tell you, she's the mother of us all. She is the Theotokos. She's the mother of God. I'm going to tell you, she is the original church. The original tabernacle. The original dwelling place. And just like Mary, who doesn't save us, who doesn't redeem us, but makes a way for us. Because there's not one person in this room who got saved apart from the church. I want that to sit with you. There's not one person in this room who was saved by the church. Because there's only one name given among men by which we must be saved, and it's not a church. His name is Jesus. I thought I would get more than that right there. His name is Jesus. But not one of you heard of him apart from his body. Because Jesus has a mouth, and he has hands, and he has feet, and it's his body. It's his church. Not one of us would even know the gospel message if it hadn't been for his followers. Mary has got to show up where people are hiding because Mary is carrying the very life and power of God that friends will make his promises come to pass. How many people in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and on our jobs are hiding and they're just waiting for Mary to show up and they don't know it? Friends, Paul makes it very clear when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, when he describes the church in that second chapter, what does he say to them at the very end of that chapter? He says, in whom you also collectively, this is when Paul said y'all, y'all are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Where the church is, there Jesus is. And there's a bunch of Elizabeths in our world with dead fetuses in their womb, waiting for something to happen, thinking, I'm too small, I'm too insignificant, I'm too old, I'm not capable. This promise is too good to be true. Mary, would you make haste and get to Elizabeth? Let me change the language. Sanctuary. Would you make haste and get to Elizabeth? Because y'all are the dwelling place of God. And when sanctuary shows up, God shows up. And when God shows up, God does what only God can do. And fetuses that aren't moving suddenly start leaping. Me and Gail are excited. Can I take it a step further? Because not only will Jesus make your baby leap, 
Origen tells us that in this count, encounter, Jesus made his forerunner a prophet for the first time. God has put things in people that need to be qualified. And this is what he wants to do through us. Mary shows up 14, 15, profoundly average. Nothing spectacular to the natural eye. She shows up bearing the Son of God, the eternal Word, the second of the Trinity. And just by, Mary doesn't have to do anything but show up. So much preaching is about trying to get Christians to be more this and do more that and give them this speech and give them that talk. How about we just show up trusting that the one who dwells in us is the agent of change, as Paul said last week. So maybe unexpected Jesus this morning was for me to come in and congratulate y'all. Y'all are pregnant. Surprise, Mary. You bear in you the very presence that so many people need to encounter. The very presence that simply by showing up, things that people had given up on, things that people thought they didn't deserve, things they thought God could not do, suddenly become a reality. Let's pray. I want to pray for the hopeless this morning. I want to pray for the hiding this morning. For the person who's struggling to believe that God could be just as good as he claims to be. For the person who looks around at their circumstance. You look at your marriage. You look at your job. You look at your money, your health, your relationships, whatever. You look at your church and you say, there's no way. There's no way God has great plans for this. And I say, you're probably right. But I want to pray for you this morning. Because God keeps his promise to Bethlehem. We worship the God who shows up in places that are too small, too insignificant. And he does amazing things. And so if you need a grace of hope on your life, if you need a grace to come out from hiding and actually just believe that God would do what he said he would do, I want to pray for you. I want you to go out of this place, not with different circumstances, but with a different heart. Eyes wide open, but filled with hope. If that's you this morning, I'd invite you just to raise your hand with me this morning. That we'll be not nostalgic people, but hopeful people. Father, you see our hands going out this morning all around the room. And I'm praying that your presence that's in the room right now would make some things come alive in people right now. Holy Spirit, 
come upon them just like you came upon Elizabeth. Fill them now, we ask in Jesus' name. Be filled with the Holy Spirit that your hope would come alive, that your baby would leap, that you don't need to live in seclusion or hiding, but you can live in open confidence that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I pray that over you with great hope and expectation. I pray that this Christmas season when we celebrate the coming of Jesus would give us great confidence that he has been born in us. Father, once again in this moment, we present ourselves as living sacrifices. And we say with Mary this morning, let it be to me according to your word. Amen.